Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. But it's so good to be back, and uh, we were away, Carol and I, and just a restful time, so thankful, but it is good to be home, and it's good to be with our family here, so thankful, and as we dive in and take a look at what we're talking about, moving from me to we, and, and a huge part of that is really our growing in our love for one another. I like to call it one anothering. This is what this series is about. And we're going to talk more in depth about that today. But before I dive in, I just want to give a shout out to DJ and Amy leading it. They've led us so well the past few weekends. Are we not thankful for them? Incredible leaders. So thankful. Uh, I'm just thankful for them. Love them. Love our team. Love what God is doing here. And I love what he's about to do in us. Because we're going to talk about a topic today that may not get a lot of laughs. (laughs) But it's a topic that's greatly needed in our lives. It is. It's needed in my life. You see, early one morning, a firefighter named Matt Swatzel was driving home from his 24-hour shift. He, he had only had like 30 minutes of sleep, so he's incredibly tired. He just wanted to get home and go to bed. Well, as he recounts the story, he, he, he heard this sound. He said that was the most god-awful sound he had ever heard as he was driving And it caused him to wake up. And he opened his eyes and he realized that he had struck an oncoming vehicle. Inside this vehicle was June Fitzgerald, a 30-year-old wife and mother who was transporting her 19-month-old daughter named Faith. June was also pregnant at that particular time. Well, after Swatzel kind of came to things and realized what was going on, he got out of his car, ran over to hers, and discovered that June... An unborn child had died. Only Faith had survived the crash. Well, June's husband, Eric Fitzgerald, was a full-time pastor who was left to grieve the loss of his wife and child with close family and friends. And as they were gathering in his home and all grieving together, one of his friends walked up to him and said, you know what, as hard as this is, I can't stop thinking about the man who struck her car. He was doing a good job. He didn't mean to do this. And he realized that she was right. So right there, they just started praying for him. And this served as his first step towards the very forgiveness he had preached about so many times before. In fact, that powerful first step of praying for this man that he did not know soon led him to embrace a friendship with a man who tragically had taken his wife's and child's life. This friendship, now 10 years strong, consists of meeting together every other week, attending church together, and eating meals at the Waffle House. It's a powerful story. And as I was recounting this story in my own life, I had to stop and just ask myself a question. Phil, in light of this, how are you doing with the people who have wronged you? As I thought about that, at first I thought, you know, I'm I'm doing pretty well. You know, thankfully, there's like two people in my life who have wronged me severely. It has been 
painful. It took me some years of journeying through this pathway of forgiveness to come to the point where I had forgiven them. In fact, I knew inside that I'd reached that point when I actually sat across the table and had lunch with them a couple times. And there was no animosity inside of me at all. And I walked away going, God, thank you. I'm walking in the freedom of that forgiveness. Thank you. And then like a year later, I'm walking in the woods, you know, and about 20 minutes after walking in the woods, you know, your mind just kind of goes from this to that. And suddenly I was, I found myself thinking about them and it wasn't good. I, I was filled with a bunch of anger. And I realized in that moment, I'm like, God, I thought this was done. It seems that I have a few steps left in forgiving them. So in light of that, let me ask you the question. How are you responding to the person who has wronged you? How is that going? See, often when someone has wronged us, we act like they're indebted to us, like they owe us for what they've taken from us. And if we're honest, we're often fine with their repayment process lasting years, maybe even decades. After all, due to what they've taken from us, we have lost sleep. A whole lot of sleep, perhaps a friendship, a marriage, maybe our reputation, maybe our finances, but certainly life as we knew it. And that's why we want their life to be negatively impacted in some way, because it only seems fair. We want our brand of justice. See, the truth is, when we've been hurt, the only person we can see with full clarity and care is me. Me. In direct response to such a limited point of view, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, take them in and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What, what is he talking about? Well, the Apostle Paul is basically saying, you know what, while that other person hurt you, and while what they said and what they did was certainly wrong, there's actually something about the way that you are responding right now that is wrong as well. In fact, it grieves the heart of God. Since you are his child, you are to live and respond like his child. That means you got to move from me to we. Because whenever we don't, we respond like we belong to someone else. And that hurts. And if we're honest, we've all been there at some point in our lives. We have. In fact, some people watching online, some people right here in this room, you're there right now. So what do you do with all that? Someone's wronged you. It's hurtful. I mean, maybe they betrayed you. How do you move forward? Well, Paul says this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I don't know about you, there's a lot of verses in the Bible. That one's packed. Right there. That's packed with a lot of words. There's a lot going on there because there's a lot that can happen within the human heart when we put me first. Because when we do, we allow just one selfish action to kick in. You know what? Many other friends want to join in as well. It all starts, he says, with this thing called bitterness. A mixture of antagonism, hostility, and resentfulness. You see, whenever we're wronged by somebody, we often struggle and we're tempted to respond much like, you know, we see Job had done in the Old Testament. And if you've not really stumbled across this verse, you're going to realize uh, that you relate with him. 
He says, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Have you been there? Are you there right now? If so, be really, really careful. Because instead of making strides forward into your bitterness, the Bible says, strive for peace with whom? Everyone. And be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, what we allow to be rooted within us can take control of us. That's why the Bible gives us this instruction because bitterness, if we allow it in, I'll tell you what, it paves the way for rage, Paul says. That's a fit of violent anger. And be honest, has anything good ever resulted from the times when you just lost it? Anything good come from those times? You probably want to forget those times. You see, rather, you most likely can relate to something else the Bible says. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. That might not be the part you relate to, though. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And as some of you know, folly hurts. It hurts a lot. It hurts a lot of people, and it hurts you, and sometimes for years. You see, basically, rage is anger that has been set on fire and burns down a forest. And what I find interesting about this, when you take a look at the text, is that Paul actually lists this particular symptom of anger before he actually talks about anger itself. And I think it's because he likely had seen anger gone wild. Wild. Anger is a strong feeling of belligerence aroused by feeling wronged. Anger. Now, what's interesting, take a look here at Ephesians 4. He says, be angry. I'll just stop there. Be angry? Like, I can be angry? Yes. I used to think that being angry was just wrong all the time. No, no. Be angry and do not sin. Let's talk about that. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You see, anger is an emotion that God gave to us. In fact, we should feel angry when we see someone mistreated in some way by another person, by their selfish actions or their words. And so it's possible to be angry and not sin. In fact, you could easily argue that it's actually wrong. It's a sin not to get angry when you see somebody mistreated because it shows that you really don't have a caring heart. And yet, even in that situation, Paul says, well, be angry, but don't. Sin. Basically, before your head hits the pillow at night, we're to put our anger to rest. Because if we don't, anger will grow while we're sleeping. It will consume our hearts and likely eat us for breakfast the next morning. We got to be really, really careful. And the truth is, and I know because people talk to me, that some here today have allowed many nights to pass before dealing with your anger. Others have allowed anger to become like a friend that you take with you wherever you go. And this then can lead, Paul says, to brawling, a noisy quarrel, squabble, or fight. I don't know if you've seen such a thing. I think we all have in some way or form through our lives. But you know what? It can get out of control. That's why the Bible says the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. 
And yet we live in a culture that's contrary to that. We live in a culture that will stop at nothing to ensure that the quarrel breaks out. Because if we stop the quarrel, well, that would reduce our number of potential followers on Facebook and Instagram. We feed the fire, right? And this then can lead to slander. A malicious and false statement made about another person. Slander has become incredibly popular in our world today because it places us high up on a pedestal while making that other person down there downright evil. Slander is dishonest and hurtful. That's why scripture says, he who conceals hatred has lying lips and he who spreads slander is a fool. In fact, not only does scripture tell us that we're not to slander another person, scripture tells us that we are not to remain silent when we see somebody else being slandered by another person. In fact, David in the Old Testament, he said it this way. He said, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. Listen to that. I will have no part in that. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. We who have been made righteous by Christ's work on the cross are to ensure that others are treated righteously and graciously. That means we're not to stand by idly. For when we do, we could be complicit in the other person's pursuit of malice. Malice, a desire to inflict injury, harm, or suffering on another. And whenever we choose to respond with malice, either up here mentally or even physically, we're actually seeking to claim God's throne for ourselves. Because after all, judging others is actually God's job. It's not ours. It's why Paul wrote in Romans, he said, Do not take revenge, my dear children, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And some people say, okay, God, when's that going to start? I'm ready. I'm here watching. Can you just kind of kick it in now? It's his job. It's his timing. Friends, what's our job? What's our job in all of this? Well, here in Ephesians, Paul tells us that when it comes to our dealings with one another, we are to strategically move from me to we. It's why he writes here in verse 32. He says, be kind and compassionate to whom? To one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So that means forgiveness is my job. Forgiveness, though, is also your job. It's our job. And if we're honest, we're going to talk about this. Eventually, we'd come to this question. But that just doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, shouldn't that other person who've wronged us, shouldn't they act first? And it's in moments like these, whether we know it or not, we have a lot in common with, with Peter. You got to love Peter, right? I mean, Peter asked Jesus this question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Isn't that interesting? You gotta love Peter, right? Peter's the one who got out of the boat, walked on water in order to see Jesus, at least for a little bit, right? Peter was the one who proclaimed that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter is the one who said, I will never deny you. 
See, Peter's often remembered as someone who acted first and then applied reasoning sometime later. And yet in this situation, what he says in that culture is rather actually impressive. You see, Peter asked this question, how many times should he forgive somebody? And then with another question, he actually answers the first question, up to seven times? Now, to some here today, seven times seems like a good start. To others here today, you think, well, seven times, that's just like far too many. How would the culture have responded to what he said? They would have thought him generous. You see, the rule back then, the law stated this, forgive a first offense, forgive a second, and a third, but then punish the fourth. In modern day language, three strikes, you're out. So Peter, in his attempt to impress Jesus, went way beyond what other rabbis were teaching back then. And yet even so, Jesus, he he wasn't impressed. He answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. What's he saying with that? Well, in the Hebrew world, the number seven was a number of perfection. For example, you know, after seven days, a week. You have a week, right? And after seven days is completed, another week starts. And then another week starts, a full circle. And it just keeps going and going. So Jesus is making it clear that when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness should keep going. Forgiveness is unlimited. And as soon as you start counting the amount of times you have been forgiving, you're not forgiving. Wow. So you got to imagine the look on Peter's face. Jesus had seen that look before, right? I mean, he he kind of messed up. So, you know, Peter, he's struggling now. He's shocked, but he's not alone. The others who are listening, they're going, okay, Jesus, like, what is going on here? And so in order to help people embrace an action that was not normative to them, Jesus did what he often did. He told a story. Love is stories. And this story is told in three distinct scenes. Scene one, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. End of scene one. And what do we learn from it? Well, we see a king, he takes center stage, and he's settling accounts that are due him. And so various people are brought before him. He's settling accounts, and along comes this particular servant who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we don't really know what that means. It's a lot of money. For example, back in the day, in order to carry 10,000 talents, 8,600 people would need to carry 60 pounds of coins each, which would result in a line that's five miles long. We're talking millions of dollars here. There's no way to ever pay back the debt, and the king expects full payment. But when he sees the servant pleading for mercy and he sees his heart, the king forgives it all. He forgives it all. The king, of course, is Jesus. The servant would be us. That even though our sins are many, when we ask for forgiveness, our debt is completely erased. As the psalmist wrote, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That is the beauty and the power 
of the end of scene one. And wouldn't it be great if the story ended there? But the curtain opens to scene two. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. End of scene two. And what do we learn from it? Well, the servant, now just recently freed from all that debt, right? He's a creditor, a man owed money. How much? A hundred denarii. That's like a hundred days wages. So now the servant who was freed from a debt that would have taken him around 160,000 years to pay back confronts a man who owes him 100 days wages. He grabs him by the throat, demands his money, and when the man falls on his knees, just like he had done previously, and asks for mercy, no mercy is shown. He's sent to prison. See, those who have been forgiven much can be very unforgiving. That's the end of scene Two. But the story's not done. The curtain opens, and now we are introduced to scene three. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. Wait a second, right? Stop the presses. I thought this guy had been completely forgiven of this debt. And now he's being judged severely. Why? Well, the debt had been forgiven. But what the expectation was is that that gift would be given to yet that other person in that man's life. It was a gift that he wanted to receive, but not a gift he wanted to give away. Do you remember what Paul wrote? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So the servant was more than willing to embrace this forgiveness for himself, but did not want to extend that to another. In fact, this man, whether he realized it or not, had failed to live according to how Jesus taught all of us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's a prayer that says, Lord, forgive me to the extent that I'm willing to forgive another. So scene three is over, and so is our story. But is it, really? Because some here watching online, some here in this place, you are trapped in this story. You're you're trapped in scene two, or you're dealing with the weight of scene three. Oh, you've been forgiven. But you can be very unforgiving. And to that, I encourage you to listen to the words that Jesus said at the end of scene three. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Friends, those words should get our attention, our full attention. You see, as someone once said, failing to forgive another is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Even so, some hear that, they go, okay, but wait a second. 
I understand why this would have happened to the unmerciful servant, because after all, the man who wronged him asked for forgiveness, but he failed to grant it. But that's not my situation at all. You see, the person who's wronged me has never apologized, likely never will apologize, so I can't forgive somebody who is too proud to admit that they were wrong. Well, what did Jesus do on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And what did Paul write? He said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And how did Jesus forgive? Well, first of all, he did all of the work. He went to the cross. He suffered the pain of death. He rose again all before we ever admitted a single thing we had ever done wrong. The same heart should be extended to those who have wronged us. We need to be forgiving. We need to forgive one another. And even as I say that, I want to draw a distinction here between forgiveness and reconciliation. When I first talked about Eric Fitzgerald, he started with forgiveness. And then he went all the way to reconciliation, became friends with a man who had taken, really, his wife's and child's life. But that's because of the heart of Matt Swatzel. You see, sometimes the people who wrong us, they're not safe people. God made them, loves them. They're just not safe people. And so reconciliation, while it is a call, it may not be possible right now. Because it requires that other person to humble themselves as well. So reconciliation may not happen tomorrow, may not happen next week, may not happen next month. In fact, sadly... It may never happen. But forgiveness starts right now. Right now. When wronged, we will forgive one another freely and fully. Because when we do, we model Christ's forgiveness granted to us that we then grant to others. We move from me to we. And I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. I've been there. If it's a struggle you're facing right now after the service is done in a few moments, we have prayer partners up front. They'll be glad to pray with you. But let's pray right now. Will you close your eyes? Dear Father, we thank you for your incredible grace. That you saw us in our need and you sent us a solution, your own son, the Savior, Jesus, that you would be obedient to your Father and go all the way to the cross for us so that we could be recipients of your grace, and of your forgiveness. Lord, for all who have asked for that forgiveness, Lord, we thank you. Our chains are gone. They're gone. We live in freedom. We are free. But Lord, when it comes to those who wrong us, Lord, some of us, he picked up a few of those chains that have been taken. We're kind of carrying them right now. They're binding us. They're constricting us. We've been forgiven much, but we've been very unforgiving. Lord, forgive us. Lord, help us to forgive that person. Lord, help us to release that chain or those chains that are binding us, robbing us of joy, and even causing kind of explosions of anger in our lives when we don't even know what's coming. Help us to lay those down. 
Help us to embrace not only the gift that you've given us, but embrace the process of extending that to that person. This is the call you've placed on us all. Help us, Lord, to experience your grace, walk in your grace, and extend your grace to one another. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing right now. And we thank you for what you're about to do in our lives by your spirit and by your grace. Jesus, we thank you. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.